0: Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It's in uh, page 967 of your pew Bible uh, in the lower right-hand corner of the page. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hey, before we get started, uh, I just I just want to ask: Do we have anybody with us this morning who's sheltering up here from the storm down south? Anybody got some folks back here? Anybody else in here? Yeah. Okay. Where? Oh, good. Yes. Okay. Well, listen. Here's what I want you to know: While while we're deeply saddened that you uh, for the reason that you are with us, we want you to know how welcome you are here, and I, I want you to know that. Uh, like, like all the saints of God across this, this uh, nation, we've been praying for you and for your families all week. And before we go any further in our service, would you guys take a moment, let's just pray for these folks and for the folks that are sheltering today. Holy God, we know that even in the midst of the most terrible storm, you are our shelter. We give you thanks for those who are with us today, for the way that you have drawn them safely from the storm. We pray for those who are still in a dangerous path, we pray for those who are going to return to devastation. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us all to know that life is a precious gift and that while our homes can be beautiful, they can be rebuilt, while our things can have meaning, new memories can be made. And so, O oh God, be with those who are suffering in this moment and who will endure some challenges ahead. We ask your Holy Spirit to be with them and that you would challenge your church, both here at Ebenezer and your global church, to respond to all who are in need. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we are continuing a sermon series called Bible 101. And this is a different kind of series, church. It is. Because most of the time what you do in church is you take a story or a couple of stories and we try to draw some spiritual moral lesson from the story and see how we can apply it to our lives. This is a different kind of series because the, the premise of this series is simply that if we understand the Bible better, like where it came from and how it was put together, it's going to be more accessible to us. And so the, the task of this series is to help us better understand and apply the scripture to our lives last week we began this series by talking about the old testament its structure and formation and this week we're going to transfer to talk about the new testament but before we do that last week we also uh had an opportunity to to be challenged to do a couple of things like for example one of the challenges that was issued last week was i challenged folks in here to learn all 66 books of the bible and to be able to say them in order in a minute or less why Because the Bible can be an intimidating text. And one of the ways we make the Bible less intimidating and more accessible is by knowing what's in the Bible. And if I learn to say the books, that's one thing. But if I learn to say them in a minute or less, I know that I know them. I talked to somebody this week. She told me she was down to 34 seconds for her 66 books. I thought that was awesome. So keep up that great work. A second thing that we wanted to challenge folks to do was actually to engage in the scriptures. And so we put in people's hands last week a Bible reading plan, one chapter a day, to help folks stay connected with God's word, along with some questions to ask for reflection. If you didn't get a copy of that plan, we've got some available at the Connection Desk in the lobby, and we can make those available online for you as well, for those of you who are joining us for online worship. So last week we dealt with the Old Testament. Today we're going to talk about the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books, and those books are really kind of divided into two groups. You've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you've got the Epistles. The word Gospel means good news. Those four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life. The word Epistle is a fancy word for letter, Because most of the rest of the books in the New Testament are letters written either to a church or to a group of churches in a particular region. So we've got gospels and we've got epistles in the New Testament. When was the New Testament written? Well, the New Testament, generally speaking, was written between the year 50 and the year 110 A.D. That 60-year span is when the 27 books of the New Testament were largely composed, and it's worth noting that the epistles, particularly the Pauline epistles, the epistles written by Paul, were the first books in the in the New Testament to have been written we would think that it would be the gospels but in reality the gospels were some of the later writings for the New Testament the pauline epistles were among the first to be written paul wrote his epistles between about the year 50 AD and the year of his death 47 AD uh, 67 AD 50 to 67 AD 67 AD he wrote his last book the book we read from this morning the book of second timothy while he was in mamertine prison awaiting his execution I want to spend some time talking about the Gospels specifically with us this morning. When were the Gospels written? Well, the Gospel of Mark was the first Gospel to be written. It was written about 70 A.D. It was written about 70 A.D. We did a series a few weeks back, a few months back, called The First Gospel, where we walked through the Gospel of Mark. Mark was written about 70 A.D. And then, about ten years later, Matthew and Luke were written. Uh, A couple of things that are worth noting. Mark was the first gospel. Matthew had a directed audience. And so if you were to go to Matthew and to to read his genealogy, you know what I mean by that? The who is who, what's it, begot so-and-so, that thing. If you go and read that, Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus Christ back to Abraham. Why? Because Matthew was writing to a largely Jewish audience. That's why. And so he wanted to give Jesus the street cred of having been a child of Abraham. Conversely, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, when Luke writes his genealogy, Luke traces the lineage of Christ not back to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Because Luke's audience was a much broader audience. He was trying to connect Jesus with all humanity. So he connected him back to the first human. So Mark is written in 70 AD. Matthew, written to a Jewish audience, is written in 80 AD. Luke, written to a Gentile audience, is written around 80 AD. And then about 10... Years later, the Gospel of John is written. Now, one further way to distinguish within the Gospels is to talk about the synoptic Gospels and the non-synoptic Gospels. And before you fall asleep, this, this really is... It can be interesting stuff. So stay with me here, okay? So synoptic, uh, S-Y-N, synod, like synonym, means the same, opt to see. The synoptic Gospels look the same. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark. And Luke, they look the same. John is the non-synoptic gospel, and that's by design. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written over the course of about a 10 to 15 year period. And John looks at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he says, those are fantastic, but there are some other things people need to hear. And so John wrote his gospel as in an attempt to fill in the holes to make the story of Christ's ministry more complete. And that's why we have all four of those Gospels. I want to talk to you for a moment about those synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, there is a theory in modern-day Biblicism called the four-source theory. And the four-source theory says this. It says Mark was the first one written, and then, being good scholars, Luke and Matthew used Mark as a source to help compose their Gospels. Why do we think this? Well, here's why. Because if you're a thorough student of reading these Gospels, what you would come to realize is that there are broad sections of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are virtually identical. I don't mean they kind of tell the same story. I mean they're almost verbatim, word for word, the same in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it's quite likely that Matthew and Luke used Mark, the best source available to them at the time, to augment their own memory of their experiences with Christ. And that's how they wrote their their Gospels. But this is where things get kind of interesting. The four-source theory says it's not just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there's actually a fourth source out there, a lost Gospel called the Gospel of Q, which is short for a French word, kel, which means Source. And the idea was, there are some passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are identical to one another. However, there are also passages in Matthew and Luke that are identical to one another, but they don't appear in Mark. So where did they come from? Well, some biblicists will say, there is a gospel called Q that's been lost to history, that contains stories and sayings of Jesus, that Matthew and Luke used to compose their gospels. That's the four-source theory. It is one of the, the major theories in New Testament uh, thinking today. Uh, if I got all cards on the table, though, I don't buy it. And here's why. Uh, I would apply what is known as Occam's razor, which simply says that all things being equal, the simplest explanation is most likely the correct one. So here's what I would say. I believe Mark was the first to be written. And then I believe Matthew wrote his gospel early in the years of 80 AD, and that Luke actually wrote his gospel third, slightly after Matthew did, and he used Mark and Matthew as sources for his gospel. Uh, so, first of all, is everybody still awake? You still tracking with me out there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's here's what i tell you this. I think I think it is interesting information to know. But here's here's the other thing, right? The, these were fairly Scholarly men who wrote these books—they were using the best sources available to them to augment their own memory of the event in order to seal the story of Christ throughout time and history. And it's incredibly, incredibly scholarly work that that they did together. So uh, let's let's take a moment here and talk about some practical application pieces for just a second. There is uh, an opportunity for you if you would like to. ...to download something called the Uversion Bible app. You can download this from your iTunes store or your Google Play store. The Uversion Bible app is an application for your phone or your tablet. And this application is designed in such a way that it will uh, allow you to, to see all kinds of different translations... Of the Bible, which would be helpful if you're really trying to get into some heavy-duty uh, Bible study, you can read whatever translation you like on this thing. But that's not all. You can you can also highlight portions of the text and and write notes in in this app about those those text pieces. And let's say that I start reading the Bible and I say to myself after a while, you know, one of the things I really need to do, I really really need to find myself uh, some some better information on how I, how how can I pray well? I need to do a Bible study on prayer. You could go in the Bible app and you could type in their search engine studies on prayer. And the Bible app is going to give you a bunch of different studies that you could use to, to do a study on prayer. It could be four days or, or four weeks. You could pick whatever study you wanted to. And let's say I went to high school with somebody who now lives in Canada and another person who lives in Germany. And we had this spiritual bond when we were in high school. We went to church together. We were in youth group together, whatever. And I want to do a Bible study with them. Well, I can invite them on the Bible app to come and do this study with me, and the Bible app will dedicate our own individual chat page so that we can have commentary about what we've just read. We can study the Bible together, uh, though we are separated by by space. I I wanted you to know this because I think it's a really cool tool. We have our phones with us, most of us, most of the time have our phones with us, what does it look like to have a fantastic Bible app on our phone that we could use for a lot of different purposes? And as you well know, the, uh, Best Buy, that store, has their, has their Geek Squad? You encountered the Geek Squad before? I've been helped by the Geek Squad at Best Buy. Best Buy. Today, Ebenezer Church has our Jesus Freak Squad going on today. <laughs> And uh, if if you want to, if you're interested, you can go in the gym after worship. And we've got some people, There are many of them in high school, right? Because they're the ones that know how to do this stuff. They're in high school. And they, they will help you download and install the Bible app and then teach you how to use it. So we have that opportunity available for you today if you would like to. But I want to encourage you to do this. One One final thought about this. I know that there are a lot of people in our community that drive on Interstate 95 a lot during the course of the week. I know there are people who get up at 4 a.m. to make sure that they are at work on time and they don't get home until late. And so the prospect of getting up even earlier to read my Bible. Well, one of the things that the Bible app will allow you to do is listen to audio uh, copies of the Bible so that as I'm traveling back and forth to wherever I'm traveling to and from, I have the opportunity to hear God's word and I can make that time applicable time to my own spiritual development so there's the opportunity to grab that app which i think is fantastic and that's why i'm um, i'm offering it to you this morning all right so now it's time for us to kind of take our deep dive for the day you remember last week we're talking about the 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 old testament and we talked about the fact that there are really four sources from which the old testament is derived right we get our old testament in our bible from four different sources uh, one is called the Septuagint, from about 200 years before Jesus was born. Another is called the Latin Vulgate. Still another is called the Masoretic Text and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are the four sources from which the Old Testament is translated into modern languages. Septuagint, Latin Vulgate, Masoretic Text, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's what I didn't tell you last week. If you were to compare texts, let's say the Masoretic Text and the Dead Sea Scrolls copies of the book of Jeremiah... Here's what you would find. The Masoretic text version of the book of Jeremiah is one-eighth shorter than the Dead Sea Scroll version of Jeremiah. Uh, and, and so what that tells us is over the course of a thousand years, between about the first century when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written and the seventh through the eleventh century when the Masoretic text was written, there were some things that got left out of Jeremiah in the translation process. I tell you that in order to say this. When people who are translating the Bible are in the process of translating the Bible, they, they do so in such a way that they have to make some hard decisions about what they believe was the most original text. And some people agree on that and some people disagree on that, but translators have to make a hard decision. And before anybody gets terribly anxious about this, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God was present when the Bible was written? It's not a trick question. Do you believe that? Yes. So do I. But that's not all. I also believe that God was present when the scriptures were being translated. And that God is present when I am reading the scripture in my daily devotional life. My point in telling you this is to say we've got four fantastic sources, but... When people translate it, they do have to make some important decisions. The good news is God is with them in the act of translation. And God is with us in the act of reading it. Our faith is not ultimately in some form of linguistic process. Our faith in in the reliability of Scripture. Our faith is in God. I tell you this in part to also say this. While there are some difficult decisions that translators have to make when they're translating from ancient languages into modern languages when it comes to the Old Testament, we do not have to make those same hard choices when it comes to the New Testament. The New Testament has a number of very reliable ancient sources that have significant, almost complete agreement as to what the language of the New Testament is. The one exception to this, the one most notable exception to this, we discovered in our Mark series a few months ago when we talked about the fact that Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 are most likely later editions, but your Bible would tell you that when you are opening your Bible to read it. Uh, So last thing I want to kind of cover with you before we move into a closing moment. Do you remember the, the Da Vinci Code? Have you ever read that book? yes a few of you or maybe you saw the movie the da vinci code so the da vinci code was was is a work of fiction by a guy named dan brown and it's a really interesting book uh but it's it's based on a premise and the premise of the da vinci code is very simply this that that when the new testament was being put together canonized that there was some great bias that excluded some books from the new testament and allowed other's books to be included so While I appreciate the story that Dan Brown tried to tell, the reality is that's not what happened at all. I wanted to talk to you for just a moment about what the process was for deciding what books made it into the New Testament and what books didn't make it into the New Testament. And there are really three criteria that a book had to meet in order to be admitted into the New Testament canon of Scripture. Criteria number one is it had to have apostolic connection. Apostolic connection simply means it had to be connected to an apostle, either written by or dictated by an apostle. So if we take just the first two books of the New Testament, Matthew was written by Matthew the apostle, sometimes called Levi. Mark was written by John Mark, and most scholars believe that John Mark was a student of Peter and that Peter is the one who dictated the book of Mark to Mark. It has apostolic connection. The second requirement in order for a book to be admitted into the New Testament canon is it had to have adherence to something called the rule of faith. Adherence to the rule of faith. What is that? Well, we actually shared the rule of faith earlier today in the form of the Apostles' Creed when we talked about the fact that there is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that God has been an active creating, redeeming, and sustaining the world. The earliest formation of the Apostles' Creed was called the Rule of Faith. It was generated in the 2nd century A.D. by a guy named Irenaeus, who was the Bishop of Lyon, France. And when the early church in the 4th century was trying to figure out what books should be admitted to the canon of Scripture and what books should not, one criteria was it had to be connected to an Apostle, And the next criteria was it had to have substantial compliance or adherence to the rule of faith, our basic Christian doctrine. And there was a third criteria. The third criteria for a book to be admitted to the canon was it had to be universally accepted across the Mediterranean church. Universally accepted across the Mediterranean church. What does that mean? Well, in the early years of Christianity, the church was limited to the area around the Mediterranean Sea. And so basically, it was comprised of churches in Southern Europe, Southwest Asia, and North Africa. And if a book was being read by people in North Africa and Southwest Asia, but was not being read by people in Southern Europe, it was excluded from the canon. However, if it was being read by all three groups of churches, it was included for the canon. So these are the three criteria. An academic, philosophical, theologically solid process. Had to have apostolic connection, every book in the New Testament. Had to have adherence to the rule of faith. And finally, had to have universal acceptance across the Mediterranean church. And there were 27 books that met this criteria. And therefore, there are 27 books in the New Testament. So while I find Dan Brown's writing to be a good read, it's also not at all true what he says about the canon of Scripture and its formation. Uh, So as you see, this is a different kind of study. We're, We're not just looking at the things that we have looked at before in terms of stories and trying to take spiritual moral lessons. The hope is that the more we understand about the Bible, the more accessible the Scripture is going to become to us. One final thought. It's simply this. A few years ago, my wife and I had the wonderful opportunity to travel to Israel. While we were there, we went to a town called Jericho, And while there, we saw a a sycamore tree that was 2,500 years old. And if you think about people who were from that region, there was one one guy in particular from that region, and he was short. He was, in fact, a wee little man. His name was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a... Sycamore tree. And so there I am in Zacchaeus' hometown at this ancient intersection of two roads. And in the corner, there's this this giant sycamore tree that's 2,500 years old. And I thought to myself, I wonder if that's Zacchaeus' tree. How powerful. I don't know if it was Zacchaeus' tree or not. I know I'll never forget that tree. Just at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, there's a garden, a famous garden called Gethsemane. And when you go into Gethsemane, you find trees that also are between two and 3,000 years old. Olive trees, that's the type of garden the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's an olive garden. And so you walk by these olive trees that some of them are two to 3,000 years old, and you know that on the night our Lord Jesus gave himself up for the world, he walked in the shadow of these trees as he knelt to pray. It gave me chills. Adjacent to the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a church. It's called the Church of All Nations. I want to show you a picture of it here. So the Church of of All Nations is built at the base of the Mount of Olives. And if I can just do a quick geography lesson. The Mount of Olives is on one side. The Temple Mount, Zion, is on another side. And in between these two mountains, there's a valley uh, called the Kidron Valley. And... When you think of valley, many of us think of things like the Shenandoah Valley. It's miles and miles wide. The Kidron Valley is like the distance between the sanctuary and the ministry center. Okay, this is not, not a huge valley. And if you, if you look on, on, on one side, on that side of, of the Mount of Jerusalem, you see an ancient gate called the Golden Gate. And prophecy says that when, when the Son of God, when the Messiah returns, He's going to come through this ancient gate that's been shut for years and years and years. And as He comes through the gate, He's going to gather all nations before Him. So, facing the golden gate, uh, facing that golden gate is is the Church of all nations, where all nations will be gathered. One final thought about that is just that between the Mount of Olives and the mountain of Jerusalem called Zion? That Kidron Valley, today, it's filled with tombs. It's a graveyard. And you think, oh, that's kinda, that's kinda icky. Not really. You think about it. If, if you know that when Jesus comes back, He's coming through that door, right? These people have first row seating for the resurrection, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's fascinating. Here's why I'm telling you all this. Aside from going to seminary, the most important thing that I have done in terms of making the Bible come alive in my life has been to go and experience this pilgrimage to Israel. And so in January of 2020, I'm going to take a group of people from Ebenezer Church on a pilgrimage to Israel. And I, 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 want, I want you to know this. I don't, it's, not, it's not a financial thing for me. I get no financial benefit from it. It's not, none of that. There's one reason it made the Bible come alive for me. And I think it could do the same thing for you. And so if you're interested today in the gym, there's some opportunity to gather information about about that trip. And we're telling folks almost a year and a half in advance because we want people to be able to plan. But if you have the opportunity, I sure do hope that you'll come because I think it'll do for you what it did for me. It'll make the Bible come alive. My brothers and sisters, the better understanding that we have about the formation of Scripture, the more Scripture is going to be accessible to us, and the more accessible it is, the more ready and willing we will be to apply it to our lives. Thank you for joining us for the second installment of Bible 101. Church, would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you for this day, for the people who are gathered in this room, and for the gift of your Holy Scripture. We ask, Holy One, that you would continue to speak to us through the gift of your Bible. We pray that you would reach out to us through those ancient words, and that your Holy Spirit would make them come alive in a new way for us, just as you have for generations of, pa- of those in the past. We ask, O oh God, that you would bless us in our search for you and remind us that when we seek, we shall find. We pray these things in the name and the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord and all of God's people said, Amen.